Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Interview episode on Hellenistic Federalism with Dr. Elka Close. Hello everyone, today I have with me Dr. Elka Close, an independent researcher and creator of the Hellenistic History blog. A PhD graduate from the University of Edinburgh, Dr. Close's research is focused on the emergence and role of the Achaean League in the Hellenistic period, one of the important political bodies of mainland Greece during the time, and today she has joined us to discuss her work and clear up the sometimes complicated nature of Greek federalism. Thanks again for taking the time to come on and talk on the show, Dr. Close. You're very welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Now, as I always like to ask, could you tell us a bit more about your background and the path that led you down the Hellenistic rabbit hole? For sure. It's a very, very similar process that I think a lot of people have gone through. So I studied Greek and Latin in high school, and I was so fascinated by it because I had a very good teacher and we did a very memorable trip to Greece about 15 years ago now. And I then went on to study history with a focus of ancient history. I then got the chance to go on Erasmus to Greece and I took it. And in Greece, I had the, I had just had a few courses in Greek about the Hellenistic period. And of course, as a good Erasmus student, you don't have to do any exams. I just had to write papers in English. And quite a few of those happened to be about the Hellenistic period. I didn't know much about it, so I started researching and it was quite interesting because it was unknown. There was a lot of fighting and a lot of people dying and a lot of intrigue and Rome came into play. And after I returned home uh, in, to Belgium, I did my MA in ancient history and I also did my thesis on the Roman relations with Greece and the Roman conquest. I enjoyed it so much that I decided to apply for a PhD in Edinburgh. The good thing about having it doing a PhD in the UK is that you don't necessarily have to have a project. In Belgium, you are always signed on as part of a project. Here I could choose whatever I wanted to do. And I thought, okay, well, I like Polybius. Polybius is very important when it comes to these, when you're, it comes to doing research on the Roman conquest of Greece and the Roman relations of Greece. And I liked him so much that I thought, well, I'm going to work on Polybius. And I want to do something on Polybius and on his views on, of the world. And I did some more research and eventually I ended up going into more detail and talking about the Achaean elites and the Achaean League. And before I knew it, four years later, I had completed a whole PhD on Megalopolis, Polybius' hometown, and its role within the federal state that Polybius belonged to, the Achaean League. From there on, I kind of moved back to Belgium. And here now, I'm basically, it's a hobby. I'm teaching Greek and Latin at a school right now. But in my spare time, I'm still trying to further my interest and further my research and share the beauty that is the Hellenistic world with everyone. And basically, that's kind of the whole path that I've been going through. The blog is born was born from that because I do miss the interest. I do miss fielding the interest that I have. And basically, that's where I ended up with. The path has led me to some very interesting people that I was able to work with, uh, some very interesting courses that I was able to do. I was in Greece for about six months as an Onassis Fellow to complete my research for the PhD. I got to work with some very nice and very good academics who some of them supervised my PhD. Others were just very helpful when it came to doing research. It's been an interesting ride and I hope it can continue further along. And I, I enjoy having discussions with people about history and about the Hellenistic period in general. 
In an age of kings, it is hard to imagine that the Greek polis had retained any sort of relevancy, whether it came to self-autonomy or in the wider politics of the Mediterranean world. Could you elaborate more about the nature of federalism and what led to the rise of groups like the Achaean and the Aetolian League? So when we're talking about federalism in ancient Greece, just like federalism today, uh, it's a very complex term. For a long time, it was considered anachronistic to talk about federalism connected to ancient Greece. But as we know today, these there definitely were states that were founded in the, the same way that we view a federal state, meaning that it has an overarching structure which combines different smaller units, where it be polis or smaller units such as Komai, which are farmlands or, or smaller communities. But the thing that is interesting about Greek federalism is that their Greek federal states were more diverse than most people know. So a lot of people have heard about the Aetolian and the Achaean League and the Amphictyonic League surrounding Delphi, but there are also different states that were formed, such as the Peloponnesian League, which was just formed for military purposes. So if you look at federalism in ancient Greece, it's more diverse than that. Whether these these states were founded for religious, political, military reasons, it didn't really matter. What does combine all of them is that they, they created a sort of overarching new way in which these polis interacted with each other. Greek polis have always been independent actors in a wider network in which different kind of traditions were in place in ways that they could interact with many of these kind of grew into federations in their own right because it was an, a good way of creating a sort of shared identity if you look at the arcadian league for example which was founded in at some point in the fourth century by two of the arcadian cities Stygia and montinea as a way of protecting themselves against sparta it's an interesting thing that you know you see these ethnic tribes coming together and forming bigger units as a way of combining local and Panhellenic and tribal identities in, in, in one form. So you see these koinon or these federations spring up for different reasons. One of them was to protect the Greek cities of one tribe against an outside threat or to further a common goal. Another reason could be for one polis to expand their circle of influence as Athens did, for example, in a deal with the Dealing League in the 5th century. But a common thing here is that we see is that most of these leagues in the Hellenistic period at least had been founded because there was a sense of, okay, there is a shared local identity that is bigger than the polis level. And the best way that we can do this to protect ourselves from bigger states such as the Persians or Alexander and Philip is to band together. And you see this happening quite a lot in the Hellenistic period, partly because it was also one of the few ways that a Hellenistic polis could survive in mainland Greece if you were dealing with these outside big powers such as the Hellenistic kingdoms or later on Rome. If they were connected through a federal framework, it would be easier for them to defend their own interests. It didn't mean that the polis itself didn't survive, but they found a new way of dealing with these kind of outside forces coming in and trying to take control of Greece. So I think that's in a way a good overview of how the, these polis came to be. There are, of course, federal states that predate the Hellenistic period, and I'm talking about, I've already mentioned a few, but these can be seen as an actual continuation of a sort of development of local identities and tribal identities, such as the Achaeans, the Aetolians, the Arcadians, the Thessalians. It's a kind of 
realization that whereas autonomy and local identity remain important in the Hellenistic world, it was necessary to grow and go beyond that, that level of the polis to survive. Perhaps our best source of information on the Leagues during the Hellenistic period is Polybius, who was himself a prominent member of the Achaean League during the 2nd century BC. What sort of information can we draw from his writings with regards to the function and history of the Leagues, and can he be entirely taken at his word when speaking about other groups like the Aetolians? So Polybius is an interesting guy, an interesting source when talking about federal states, for he is actually in many cases our only primary source when it comes to the function and the history of the Hellenistic federal states. The problem with Polybius for me is I, I love the guy, I, I quite like how he approaches history. You can clearly see the person that Polybius is coming through his writing. It's quite interesting. The information that he gives us, it, it is the information that you would expect from a an important statesman who is writing about the political history, because let's be honest, his histories, which covers the Roman conquests of the world, in his opinion, is kind of a history of Rome and Rome's interaction with influential states. Now, the most important thing to remember here is that Polybius, before he was banished to Rome, because he was forced to Rome and stayed in Rome while he was writing most of his work, is that he actually had a career as an Achaean statesman, and his father was an important Achaean official, just as his prime example, Philopoimen, who was a very important person within Achaean history. Now, what does he tell us? He basically gives us a lot of information about the workings of the Achaean League in, in particular. He also mentions the way that the, a few of the other leagues work. But the main point that we get from Polybius is the interaction of these Hellenistic states with other Hellenistic players, the Hellenistic kings, Rome, and how that kind of fits in the way that Polybius was trying to write his work. So the goal of showing how good and how well Rome managed to conquer the world always kind of shines through in the way that Polybius writes about these Hellenistic states. What is interesting, if you look at Polybius' view on the Achaeans, it's extremely positive. In his first few books, it's the, the ideal state. There's a famous quote that people always tend to discuss when they're talking about the history of the Achaean League, is that he, in his second book, I think, chapter 37 or something, he describes it as being the best of the Hellenistic states, because or, or the Greek states, because it was able to unite the entire Peloponnese into one big city, where they had the same laws, weights, currency. Of course, this is an exaggeration, and if you look at Polybius' portrayal of the Achaean League in practice later on, it's quite different. You can see that there are problems. The army is not as strong as he makes it out to be. There are other problems with it that I'm not going to go into detail, but it's an interesting idea and it's not surprising if we kind of take into account that he was an Achaean, he was a patriot before he was banished to Rome. If you compare it to a later portrayal of the League in the years after the Third Macedonian War, he's much more negative. He's much more, he's a little bit bitchy, I think, also because he was banished to Rome and he was very bitter about that, which influences his portrayal as well. And all of a sudden the League is in, in decline, They're, the leaders are are idiots, um, they're his political opponents, he doesn't like them. The same with his portrayal of another of the famous leagues, the Aetolians, he doesn't like them. So it's interesting that when you 
look at Polybius and his whole attitude towards the Aetolians, there's a constant negative idea that they're they're pirates, they're plunderers, they're like the worst of the Greeks, because at their instigation, the Achaeans were lured into a war with, with Sparta in the 220s. There's a whole problem there, and he doesn't really have that much to, good to say about the Aetolians. Now, if you just look at those two examples, then you can clearly see that while Polybius is extremely valuable as a source, there are some problems. He His personal judgments comes through, which is not surprising. I mean, if I was to write a history of the things that I was personally involved in, I would find it very difficult to keep my personal judgment out of it. But what you see with Polybius is that you have to be aware that there are personal problems. And I think a lot of people don't realize this, but we have to be aware of it. Uh, even though this source is more than 2000 years old, there is still a guy behind the source. And I think it's important to stress this. Another issue with Polybius when talking about the leagues is that he, the history he gives us is, is good. You know, you, you can clearly see what they were up to, but his work isn't, didn't su survive completely. So for the, especially for the years after the Third Macedonian War, it all gets very, very fragmentary. And we don't really have that much material that survives. So it leaves room for a lot of interpretation and a lot of speculation, which is fun to do. But if you want to draw actual concrete conclusions, it's, it's quite a, a big issue in certain ways. A third thing that I find that is a bit of a pity when you're talking about Polybius is he tends to, as a lot of people did, a lot of ancient historians do, write the history of the elites. So he will try to mention the most important people, the most influential people such as Aratus or Philopoimen, whereas it's interesting, it's good, but if you compare him to the coins, for example, or to the epigraphic record, you can see that this idea of the history of great men is interesting, but if you want to have a more nuanced image about how these leaks functioned, for example, if we look at the actual way that the members of the Achaean Koinon interacted with one another, we can glean certain basic informations from Polybius. But we have to go to the epigraphic record, to the decrees, to the boundary disputes, to get a better image of how these, these, these internal functions of the league actually work. And for me, it's always good to kind of, when doing research, to look at Polybius, but compare him to what else, whatever else material we've got, where it be coins or if it's a million decrees, I don't know, but it's always, it's always nice to compare the two. Especially if I go back to an example I gave before, this idea that the League after the Third Macedonian War was in decline, the Achaean League was in decline. If you look at the epigraphic record, it paints a picture that is entirely different. We still have members that are arguing with, with one another over boundary disputes. They're going to the federal government to ask for mediation. There are still coins being minted in great numbers. So it's good. Polybius tells us a lot. But there are problems with using Polybius as the source for the Hellenistic koina. Nevertheless, he's still interesting and I still like him. Compared to the top-down and hierarchical model of the Hellenistic kingdoms, the leagues were more democratic in the way that they were organized. How did the leagues function internally when it came to decision-making and arbitration? And did they differ significantly from earlier groups like the Delian League of 5th century Athens or the Peloponnesian League of Sparta? So the leagues were a little bit different than the ones that came before. It's always good to also point out that when we say 
the more democratic way that they functioned, it's still not the same as the way we we see democracy today. Because I have taught history to high school students for a few years now, and they never seem to realize that democracy in Greece was different than it is today. These federal states still had a democratic element, but just like in the polis, they had the same kind of elite leaders that could influence the decisions and the policies of a koinon as long as they, if, if they were chosen and if they had enough support. Which is why if you look at the politics of certain of, of several of these leaks, and again, I'm going back to the Achaeans because that is what I know most about, you can still see that there were internal parties struggling for power. And when one person of a certain political group, maybe party is not the right word, uh, is in power, then these certain elements take priority than when others are. So it's an interesting dynamic to, to kind of look at. If we're talking about the way that these leagues function generally, it's also good to point out that they kind of had the same institutions as a typical polis, just at a bigger level. So we had a primary assembly in the form of an ecclesia or a, a local term, because the way that these things were organized also depended on where they were organized or what goal they had or what goal they were formed. But generally speaking, so same institutions as a polis. And they had the primary assembly, which either met through a rotation system so the primary assembly was accessible to generally all citizens of the member cities or the member of the members in general. And they would either meet in a different city and that was based on a rotation system that was a part of the, of the federation, or they would meet in one set place. There is this idea that for the Arcadian League, Megalopolis was founded as a capital by the Arcadians. I generally don't believe that this is true, but a lot of scholars have actually thought that this is the case and that the Arcadians specifically founded Megalopolis so that their federation could meet there. So primary assembly, which meets several times a year. They also had their own law courts, a federal army, and basically also a boule or a synedrion, which is the place for member states to go because they were represented in this synedrion is the, the word that comes back most often when talking about the federal states and Hellenistic period, where the delegates could decide about any kind of specific meetings that were outside the jurisdiction of the primary assembly. The members also were represented here, but the way that this happened is not very clear because for most of these, we don't have the exact information about how the actual representation functioned. So Polybius mentions for example, a whole lot of information about the different institutions of the Achaean Conline, but we don't really know how they were actually organized. And at the head of these federal states, mostly were a whole bunch of magistrates. For example, for the Achaean and the Aetolian League, you had the Strategos. The Strategoi were, there were one or two, depending on when you're talking about, and they were chosen every year. Then there were also a few specific magistrates, depending on the function they had. There were nomographoi. There were also damiorgoi, who were specifically in the Achaean sense, designed to arbitrate between boundary disputes or between disputes between two states. In the Aetolian League, you had, for example, a secretary. So there, there's a whole bunch of magistrates at the top of these federal institutions. So they were always chosen from members of the League. And it proved for a lot of these statesmen or a lot of these citizens an interesting career path. They were generally one or two and were mostly chosen for a year. A lot of these leaders appear also on decrees, so we know their names. 
that is interesting if you're doing research because you can kind of see, okay, who came from where and what does this tell us about the internal balance of power between the, the different states? You also have specific magistrates that are known for specific koina. There are the Didamayorgoi in the Achaean League that arbitrate between different states. You've got a treasury in the Aetorian koinon, and I can go on. It's an interesting list of magistrates. If anyone is interested, look them up. There are quite a few good works. If you're looking at the structure of league as well, you've got these all these different institutions, but an, another important part are the members. So basically, the members of a league had certain rights and certain obligations. But what you can see in the biggest part of these federal states is that for most of them, they these members had a certain degree of autonomy. So they could function like a normal polis, and they had the freedom to do so. In addition to that, they were still part of the federal states, so they had to contribute to the federal army and the federal treasury. But because they had their own autonomy, they could also continue, in many cases, to mint their own coinage in addition to minting federal coinage. They also had the right to be represented in the federal institutions, such as the Sinedrion or like the, the Boule or the primary assembly. They had the right to compete for federal magistracies and stuff like this. So you can see that these federal states had the federal level, but also the member states that still had their own rights in many of the Hellenistic koina. I'm not saying this was the case for all of them, but for the ones that I'm most familiar with, they had this kind of local autonomy that these polis could still have. What you also have is, if you look at a different type of federal states, for example, the Delian League and the Peloponnesian League, as mentioned at the start of this the question, there's a difference because those were basically just a continuation of one big polis that used these leagues as a sort of way of usurping the power and extending their sphere of influence. When you look at the biggest federal states of the Hellenistic period, it's a much more democratic way in saying this, an equal organization in which cities at the start of the same ethnic background, so the same tribe, as mentioned before, like Aetolian, Sicilian, whatever, they could cooperate with one another and formed a league that, that was based on, on equal footing, not where one of them had the power over the others and used it for their own gains, but more a cooperation of different states. Did the formation of these groups radically affect the political landscape of the 3rd and 2nd centuries? How did the Hellenistic dynasties respond to this united front of cities that had been under Macedonian subjugation since Philip and Alexander almost a hundred years before? So this is an interesting question because it's always a difficult thing for me to think about because when I was doing the when I'm doing the research and when I look at these things, I always look at it from the point of view of the federal states. So I, I never thought about looking at it from the other point of view. But what I have realized in doing the research is basically that these Hellenistic kings in particular were intrigued by the federal states of Greece. You can clearly see that the Greek states were attractive to the Hellenistic kings, especially because with the when Philip II starts his conquest of Greece, he forms the Hellenic the first 
Hellenic League or the League of Corinth. I wasn't that familiar with it at first, but what you kind of see is that he wants to unite the Greeks into this league with him at the center of it, as Hegemon. And what I've come to realize is it's an interesting thing because he kind of uses it as a way of controlling the Greeks without actually infringing on their, their idea of autonomy and freedom. Because if there's anything we know we can say about the Greeks throughout their history is that they love their freedom. They love to be independent. And what Philip does is it's a good thing that he he unites them in a, in a league that still has this idea of, okay, we're all going to cooperate together because the Greeks were kind of familiar with federal states. There were, there are several examples that date to the classical and the archaic periods. So the fact that he makes an effort to combine the Greek cities into a Hellenic league or the League of Corinth is an interesting thing. Why am I mentioning this now? Because it's a good way of starting and a way of looking at how do kings interact with leagues. This idea continues and the Antigonids in general are, up until Philip V, quite good at trying to interact with the Greeks. They realize the importance of the Greeks in their bid for power and their conquest of controlling Alexander's empire. As some of you may know, the League of Corinth evaporated and it was kind of resurrected by another of the Antigonid kings, Antigonus Monophthalmos and his son Demetrius, Polyorchides. And what they do is they found their own version of the League of Corinth, in which they continually try to unite the Greeks with the, mass the Greek freedom and this idea of, okay, well, we have the power over you now, but you still have your own autonomy. You see this again with the last attempt. So there are three attempts of Antigonid kings trying to, or two attempts if we don't count Philip II as an Antigonid king, of the Antigonids interacting with the Greeks via the creation of their own Hellenic League. Antigonos Doson tries this again, but actually at the request of several of the Greek states, which is an interesting switch. And all of these, again, in, in these three examples, the king is the hegemon. You see that the Greeks have varying degrees of autonomy. The main reason why they agree and accept it is that it's packaged in a way that, okay, well, you're part of this federal state now, but you guys can remain free. I think in many ways, it's a kind of like a peacekeeping tool. Because if these Hellenistic kings, especially the Antigonids, were to march into Greece and try to control them, in the way that they did in several other areas, it would be instant riots. It's a very interesting way of connecting with the Greeks. Aside from that, did it alter the Hellenistic landscape? I don't know. I wouldn't say that much. If you look at later Antigonids or the Ptolemies, you can see that they, they clearly see them as valuable players and valuable allies. In some cases, they're used as, as pawns. The Ptolemies in the 250s and the 220s, you try to use the Greeks as a sort of, and the Greek states and the Greek koina as a way of diminishing the power of the Antigonids. They give them money, they give them actual support, but they're basically just, because they're too far away, I think, for the Ptolemies, the leagues are a bit less important. They're just interesting allies. You can see that there are several embassies going back and forth, but the Ptolemies don't really feature that heavily in the affairs of mainland Greece. What we do have is the Antigonids, I think due to their proximity to the Greeks, they always are very aware of the way that they have to deal with them, and, and they're always trying to actively involve them in alliances and other decrees and, and oaths of trust. So either by combining them in an actual league or as Philip Antigonus' son, he loosely interacts with them, gives them more of a leeway, which kind of turns against him when the Greeks choose Rome. 
what I'm trying to get at is that the Antigonids are far more involved and, and far more concerned with the Greek affairs and with their relationship with the Greeks than the other dynasties, because I think they're they're so much closer, so they're more important for them. If you look at the other two kingdoms and kings, they see them as actual states, but they don't. I don't think they see them as that important. I think those two dynasties are more involved with waging war on one another. And if a Greek state comes to them, they will receive them and then they will accord them the same tradition and the same benefits as any other Hellenistic state, but they're, they're not as important and not as influential. But then again, if they can be used for achieving their own goal, then they will gladly take advantage of that chance as Tychicus the Great did when the Aetolians came to him to ask for help against Rome in the Syrian war. So you can see that these these states are, are important for some of the Hellenistic kings, but not for all of them. But they were accorded the same kind of status as any other small player in the Hellenistic world. With the arrival of the Roman Republic, how did the attitude of the leagues towards Rome differ from their attitude towards the Hellenistic kingdoms? In your opinion, did they help speed along the subjugation of Greece by the Romans, albeit unintentionally or otherwise? So Rome, I especially love Rome uh, when it comes to the Greek conquest, as we should say it, or we should call it. Because when Rome came into play, I think the leagues themselves didn't really view them in a different way as they would any other king. The main problem there is that most of them didn't really know Rome or what Rome was about. So in a lot of the cases and a lot of examples that you see or that we see, it kind of ends up being the Romans are extremely underestimated by these Greek leagues. They are used time and time again to further the goals of the Koinon. The problem was that when Rome was able to defeat a few of the big Hellenistic kingdoms, when Rome was able to beat Philip V, at that point, the Greeks should have, should have realized, okay, well, look, there's something special about the Romans, but I think they didn't realize this, and that causes a lot of problems later on. Also from the Roman side, the fact that they were happy to be involved in the Greek affairs, but then were also uninterested at moments, didn't help this kind of misunderstanding and underestimation of the Romans by the Greeks. Another thing that also does not help is the fact that the Roman consul in 198 to 196, Philomenius, he was a master at understanding Greek politics. So he made promises to the Greeks that after um, he would free them from the yoke, they had a very different idea, I think, than uh, what Philomenius meant. So in a way, they didn't really treat them in a different sense. They just underestimated what the Romans want, wanted, for of all. And the way that the Romans kind of conducted their affairs, their, their diplomatic relations was a very different way than the Greeks were used to. And in a sense, I also think that is kind of what contributed as well to the sudden Achaean War of 146, where Rome all of a sudden decides to wage war against the Achaeans. When you look at the relations of these Greek states with Rome in the second century, they still continue to use the Romans as well as the Hellenistic kings for their own means. And that is basically just to keep local power and to expand locally. It's very much so the politics of mainland Greece for me in the second century is basically just 
local players that make decisions and use bigger allies to fight local problems. You see the age-old argument between Sparta, Messini, and Arcadia playing itself out within the constraints of the federal institution that is the Achaean League, but that kind of like gets dragged out into a more global scale when Sparta keeps on going to Rome to ask for exiles being returned and for them to be allowed to leave the league and then Rome then gets involved and I think at that point everything kind of exacerbates and gets bigger and it's quite problematic. In the first instance it made the conquest of Greece easier in a way, especially also the conquest of the Hellenistic world, because in quite a few instances it was a Greek state that appealed to Rome for help against another of the Hellenistic kingdoms, for another of the Hellenistic states. Apparently, the Syrian war was the result of two Greek states that are fighting one another, that one appeals to Rome, the other one appeals to Antiochus, and then these two are, um, they meet and Rome defeats Antiochus, and it has a huge consequence. Kind of speeds up the whole conquest of the East and of Greece in general. Following the conquest of the Macedonian kingdom and the rest of Greece, what was the fate of the polis and leagues under Roman rule? Did they continue to have some degree of autonomy, or was the Hellenistic period their final swan song? So it's generally thought that after the Roman conquest of Greece in 146 and the destruction of Corinth, Greece became an immediate part of the Roman Empire. In first instance, nothing radical changed. Uh, a lot of cities were destroyed. We have Polybius telling us that he helped with the reconstruction of many of, of, many of these um, cities and polis. What he does is he acts as a go-between, according to himself, between the two peoples. Uh, he helps the Greeks rehabilitate and, and get used to being under Roman control. The fate of the koina is an interesting one. In most cases, they cease to exist as we know them. So as the big Hellenistic superpower might not be the, the right word, but as the bigger Hellenistic organizations that we, we know, and they live on in smaller forms. There are a few, quite a few inscriptions in Olympia that mention the League of the Achaeans and that are dated well into the Roman period. So it's clear that they, some of these leagues, the Aetolian League as well, survived, albeit in smaller forms. And as I remember correctly, especially some of them are just for religious purposes. So these, these states still exist but not in the same big and, and independent way as they had done before. They still had the same several political institutions, but the Romans made sure that it was a different koinon or a different federation than that of the Hellenistic period. Your website, the appropriately named Hellenistic History blog, is about just that. If listeners were interested in checking it or any of your social media platforms out, what sort of topics do you cover and what are some of the best ways for them to get access? So the main thing that people should look at is, of course, the website. But uh, I, the whole thing started out as actually just an Instagram account. And I post daily on the Instagram account, which is just at Hellenistic History. There are tons of quizzes uh, that I post in the stories. I also do polls and, and different things. And I'm, I'm starting to get into like videos and reels, which is entirely new to me because I generally, I like writing more. It helps me structure my thoughts. So definitely start with the Instagram account. 
if you have Instagram. If not, head on over to the website. On the website, you find a lot of different blog posts on a variety of topics. Most of them are constraints to diagnostic worlds. But as you see also when you go onto the Instagram accounts, um, I also like a good Greek pot or a coinage or just a general batch view that I've come across because most of these uh, pictures that I post on Instagram are of past visits that I've, I've done to Musea or um, when I was traveling in Greece for research. Again, Instagram accounts, but also the website, hellenistichistory.com. It has a section on the blog, but also uh, there's this uh, thing I did a few months ago or almost a year ago now where I had a whole Hellenistic hero because I thought, okay, Alexander the Great is the perfect example of the best Hellenistic hero. But if you had to choose a second person, uh, who would it be? So you can still find the results of that there and you can still have a look at some of those more well and lesser well-known individuals from Hellenistic history that we kind of talked about. There are also uh, a few games that I designed because in my free time, I also like to do some drawings. There's a game, kind of a, my own version of uh, werewolves, where you are a group of Spartans that have to discover the uh, Athenian spies. It's set during the um, Peloponnesian Wars. There's also a Greek god memory game that you can download. And I'm currently working on two things as well that are going to be appearing soon, which is a ancient history would you rather game because I did that a few months ago on the Instagram and it had a few very, very nice results. So I'm designing cards for that as well. So you can play it with friends and family and, or students, I don't know, for people who teach. And the main thing I'm working on now is a coloring book about ancient Greece for adults and children, which hopefully will appear um, sometime later this year. So that's kind of the websites. There's also Drawing Ancient History where I share my drawings, but you can find all of that on the Instagram account. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter quite recently, but I found Twitter very difficult to crack. Um, but both of those are also just Hellenistic history. So if you want to learn it more about anything related to the Hellenistic world, go to the website www.hellenistichistory.com or follow me uh, on Instagram, Hellenistic History, or Facebook and Twitter. And maybe a last thing to mention as well is upcoming series for the blog as well are Hellenistic Cities. And as a result of this as well, federalism in the Hellenistic world. So we're going to look at different Hellenistic states. So if you enjoyed this, definitely head on over to the website in the coming weeks because a lot of new things will be posted on there. Now I'll make sure to include all the links to the social media pages we've mentioned and to the website itself where you can find all the articles that Elkin mentioned. And honestly, I think this is a fantastic place to end our discussion. And I thank you so much again for joining us on the show and bringing to light what I've, I find is a challenging subject. And I'm sure many of my listeners agree. So thank you so much again for making it a little bit more digestible for us. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed being here and I enjoy listening to many of the other episodes. So keep them going. Certainly do. And in the meanwhile, for the rest of you, thank you very much. And you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>